Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with How Stuff Works and iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And on April 23rd, 2019, Bloomberg reported that Wing Aviation LLC, which is a company under Alphabet, that's the same parent company that Google belongs to, had received FAA approval for air carrier certification. This was important news because Wing is in the drone business with the goal of making drone deliveries a reality. In other words, Deliveries made by drone, not deliveries of drones to people. And this is a goal to make it a reality in the United States. So today I thought I would talk about drones and the laws and regulations for drone operations in the United States in particular, and a little bit about other places as well, and why this certification was a necessary step for Wing's plans to come to fruition. First, I think it might be good to define some terms. See, the word drone is a bit vague. In the broad sense, we tend to think of drones as unmanned aircraft or unmanned aerial vehicles, UAVs. They can range from something that can land on the palm of your hand to something that, if it landed on you, would give you the Wicked Witch of the East treatment because you'd get squished because they can get real big. But the technical definition for a drone, or at least a, a modern definition for a drone is that it is an unmanned fixed-wing or multi-rotor aircraft, and it might draw power through a fuel combustion engine or through batteries. And for consumer drones, the battery option is by far the most common. But typically, when we use the word drone, we're thinking of multi-rotor unmanned aircraft. And frequently, they are ones that we pilot using a remote control system. The most common version you tend to see in the consumer market is the quadcopter form factor, where you have a set of rotors at what would be the four corners of the drone, and it helps produce stability. These systems are are pretty phenomenal works of technology. Microchips and sensors work to keep the drones nice and stable, They can make fine-tuned adjustments to operations, and that helps keep the drones in air. So some drones will allow pilots to actually kind of tweak those settings and give a little more control over to human operators. But to make drones appealing to the masses, it was imperative to create hardware and software that would allow the average person to fly one around without having to monitor a dozen different variables at once. If you start seeing the back right corner go down, then you're adjusting for that. You might overcorrect, and next thing you know, your drone's flipping out. So the technology got to the point where that wasn't necessary, where that could be automated. Now, I've done episodes about drone technology in the past, including talking about how DARPA was very much involved with drones, particularly during the Vietnam War, but I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time doing that here. I just want to touch on the fact that companies have developed the technology to a point that allows anyone with a little patience to operate a drone fairly easily, and doing so safely and responsibly is another matter, and that's where regulations will come in. Now, to understand the evolution of regulations, it's also important to have a quick overview of drone history, because this is another one of those examples where technology develops faster than governments can handle. Now, technically, The term drone has been used to describe any unmanned aerial vehicle in the past. Uh, The actual term would start to come up probably, I I think it's more or less like in the World War I era, 
But we've used the word to apply to things even older than that. That includes balloons, which represent the earliest drones. Again, we didn't call them that at the time, but that's what we'd call them now. As early as 1849, militaries were experimenting with unmanned balloons as explosive delivery systems or bombers. So they were using balloons to bomb targets. The Austrian military used such bomb-carrying balloons against the city of Venice. At the time, Austria was controlling much of the surrounding area, and they were laying siege to the city. The bombs had timed fuses that were cut to a length that would give the balloon enough time to reach its target before exploding. And it was mostly based off environmental conditions at the time. So you'd say, based on the direction of the wind and its speed, we calculate that it will take X number of minutes to get to where we want it to go, so we'll cut the fuse to this length. Now, some of the bombs did have a pesky habit of blowing back toward the Austrians, and that was not ideal. The Venetians would surrender to the Austrians a couple of days after those attacks, but the lack of control over the balloons in flight was a big reason that other countries did not immediately jump on board and employ the same strategy. The first fixed-wing pilotless drone recorded in history was probably the Rustin Proctor Aerial Target, which was developed in 1916. That's just 16 years after the Wright brothers had a successful demonstration of heavier-than-air fixed-wing aircraft at Kitty Hawk. Now, there are a lot of sites that have information about this particular automated aircraft. Well, not even automated. It's not automated, but remote-controlled, radio-controlled aircraft. But they all use suspiciously similar wording in those articles. So in other words, I think they're all either working from the exact same source material which is being kind, they might just be copying each other. Suffice it to say, the aerial target relied on simplistic radio controls. In fact, calling it a a remote control is probably being way too generous. Uh, And it was intended to be used like a flying bomb, but it was never actually used in combat. The realities of World War I gave countries a lot of incentives to develop drones. Being able to attack an opponent without putting the lives of your own soldiers in danger was obviously a goal for everybody. The designs in World War I really led more to the development of cruise missiles than the evolution of the unmanned aerial vehicle or UAV. Now, between the two world wars, countries began to experiment with uh, various unmanned aerial vehicles as targets, much as the aerial target name had suggested. So you would have pilots in manned aircraft practicing they're, they're firing, practicing their, their targeting on these aerial targets that were unmanned. There was no fear of endangering another pilot because there's no pilot in the enemy aircraft, and it gave pilots a chance to hone their skills without putting other people in danger. So it became a training method. These aerial targets were typically made through converting full-sized aircraft uh, into radio-controlled aircraft rather than building something specifically for the purposes of being an unmanned vehicle from the first place. Now, according to at least one story, this is where the word drone actually came from. It was applied to a UAV called the DH.82B, also known as the Queen Bee. And uh, they started using the drone to describe this particular aircraft, and then later... They used it to describe any aerial target and later still to refer to any remotely controlled unmanned aerial vehicle. And that's where we got the word drone, at least according to a lot of sites I found on the internet. 
I am not 100% confident that that is the correct answer, but we're going to go with it because it was the one, one I found consensus on. Now, I'm going to switch gears a bit and talk about a dude called Reginald Denny, who was an English actor who immigrated to America to seek fame and fortune in Hollywood. And he would do that. He acted in dozens of roles, uh, though I think I've only ever seen him in two movies. He was in the 1966 version of Batman. Some days you just can't get rid of a bomb. And he was also a bad guy in the Western comedy film Cat Baloo, which holds a near and dear place to my heart. Anyway, he had another interest besides acting, and that was of remote control airplanes. He had been in the Royal Flying Corps, the RFC in Britain, during World War I, and he had performed as a stunt pilot after that. So when he came to America, he created a company called Reginald Denny Industries, and he started to design and build remote-controlled aircraft. And he did some for the military, but he also did other ones for hobbyists and amateur pilots. He's widely cited as the first person to create a model plane business, a radio control model plane business, I should add, because there were other businesses that made model planes. It's just they were either gliders or they were just models that weren't meant to fly at all or they were tethered. So they would you would tie them to a, an anchor point and they would just fly in circles. Oh, and one other bit of trivia. Another famous person in Hollywood got her start as an assembler in one of Denny's manufacturing facilities. That actress's name was Norma Jean Mortensen, but she's better known by her stage name, Marilyn Monroe. While Denny was catering to a small and fairly wealthy clientele of RC pilots, it would take the development of the transistor and making the transistor cheap enough to produce to really give the hobbyist community a big boost. And that happened in the 1960s, and it allowed manufacturers to make much smaller radio-controlled components for aircraft. And it also meant that the aircraft themselves could be smaller. So soon dozens of companies were producing different types of aircraft, often in kit form, which means you would go out and buy the kit and you would assemble the aircraft at home. Now I should add that there had been model aeroplane associations and competitions since before Denny had even created his business, but those were essentially free-form competitions in which the aircraft is not controlled during flight. So a glider is an example, or an aircraft that uses a rubber band to store and then unleash energy. Uh, that was another example. Or they were the tethered version before radio control really came on the scene in the 1960s. As the transistor was taking shape, so was the concept of aircraft regulations in the U.S. And I'm talking about full-sized aircraft regulations um, and manned aircraft as well. In 1958, the United States formed the Federal Aviation Administration. Originally, it was called the Federal Aviation Agency. Uh, either way, it was called the FAA, still is to this day, the FAA. And the purpose of it was to oversee the development and enforcement of regulations for aircraft. There had been several fatal accidents that involved aircraft over the previous decades, some of those involving high-profile people, including a U.S. senator in 1935. Now, previously, the Department of Commerce had been charged with administering and regulating the use of aircraft, but technology was progressing quickly, and as air travel and cargo transportation became more accessible, the country began to rely, rely upon air travel much more heavily. 
And that led to the need to create a new government agency to oversee everything. Senator A.S. Mike Monroney from Oklahoma introduced a bill to create the FAA, and it had the mission to provide, quote, for the safe and efficient use of national airspace, end quote. Now, it'd be a while before the FAA turned its attention to UAVs, largely because there just weren't that many UAVs out there to worry about it. Plus, hobbyist organizations were trying to be proactive, so they were creating their own sets of rules and guidelines for operation, and part of that was in an effort to stay ahead of the need for regulations, which many thought would end up hurting the hobby as a whole. If you have to start regulating things, you discourage people from getting involved in it. So they're kind of hoping to head that off at the pass and say, well, we're just going to make sure that everyone is knows how to behave and operate these things so that we don't have the government get involved. And because, again, it was a relatively small number of people, there wasn't much concern, at least for a few decades. There was one other federal agency that hobbyists and companies catering to hobbyists had to pay attention to, and that was the FCC, which is authorized to designate radio frequencies for specific types of use. So radio-controlled vehicles fall into the same category as amateur radio. And so all RC vehicles have to operate within the amateur radio bandwidths of radio frequencies. Other frequency bandwidths are meant for different purposes. So, for example, television broadcast is one of those, where military use takes up several different bandwidths. We'll get back to the FCC a bit later because there's a complication that arises if you want to use a UAV for commercial purposes um, that the FCC oversees. All right, so for years, RC pilots didn't really have to worry about regulations as long as they followed the guidelines that the various hobbyist organizations had established. In 1981, the FAA issued an advisory circular on model aircraft operating standards, and these were a list of safety standards that the FAA advised model aircraft operators to follow. They were pretty straightforward rules that broke down into the following. Don't operate a model aircraft near populated and noise-sensitive areas. Don't operate a model aircraft in front of spectators until you've established that the aircraft is actually airworthy through some flight testing. Don't fly higher than 400 feet in altitude. If you do want to fly a model aircraft within three miles of an airport, you have to first notify the air traffic facility or air traffic control tower first. Um, I think I said first there twice, but that's how important it was. You were to give right-of-way to any full-scale aircraft and avoid flying in their proximity whenever possible, and you were encouraged to talk with air traffic control to help in your planning to comply with those rules. And that was it. And it stayed that way for a couple of decades. I'll talk about what happened next in just a moment, but first, let's take a quick break. So, as we know, technology continues to evolve, and as tech evolves, it tends to become more accessible, both because prices for that tech will drop and the tech also gets easier to use. So what was once a complicated task becomes more automated, and that means more people can get involved in that activity without encountering a very steep learning curve, and they don't have to develop the same sort of skill that earlier hobbyists had to develop in order to be active in that hobby. Flying an RC plane before the development of automated technologies required a whole lot of skill and focus. 
it's much easier to fly a quadcopter with automatic leveling capabilities. In fact, it's hard to describe the difference. Uh, I've operated an RC airplane before, and once it's in the air, it's not that hard to control it, but it it's a little tricky if you want to bring it down safely. I always had to hand the controls over to someone who is more capable than I to do that. I could do basic maneuvers. I couldn't do anything fancy. Um, quadcopters are very different because it automates a lot of the features that keeps the aircraft steady in the air as you're giving it different commands. So you're given a lot more freedom to do wacky stuff and not have to worry so much about the aircraft having a total crash. Now, the technology advanced much faster than the law did, which, again, is pretty common in technology. We'd see it in other areas, not just in things like transportation. We see it pretty much everywhere where innovators come up with a new idea that the law really hasn't accounted for yet. And then we see the law try to catch up with uh, the state-of-the-art tech, but that takes time. And it takes a while for regulators to kind of suss out the details to sort of codify them into rules and regulations. Now, the popularity of drones inevitably led to several cases in which the unmanned vehicles caused concern, including several near-miss scenarios with full-scale aircraft near airports. So the FAA recognized the situation was urgent, that these drones were just going to keep getting more and more popular, which meant more of them in the air, which meant more opportunities for disaster to occur. So the agency needed to jump in on this point. Now, at first the FAA tried to enforce rules for actual aircraft that uh, and have them apply to UAVs. And they concluded that unmanned aerial systems, or UASs, which is essentially the same thing as UAVs, it's just another name for it, uh, are legally designated as aircraft. And that would mean that all operators would have to follow FAA rules and get certified to operate their vehicles. The FAA wanted to classify UAS devices as aircraft under the Code of Federal Regulations, specifically as defined in Part 103, which is the section for ultralight vehicles. However, as defined, ultralight vehicles are manned vehicles that either weigh less than 155 pounds if they're unpowered or 254 pounds if they are powered. That's around 70 kilograms for unpowered and a little more than 110 kilograms for powered aircraft. So when the FAA attempted to prosecute cases centered on irresponsible and dangerous operation of UAS vehicles using these rules as their basis, that's where they encountered some problems. Uh, the case went to the court system of the National Transportation Safety Board, but the NTSB rejected the FAA's case on the grounds that UAS vehicles do not meet the definition of an ultralight aircraft. They said, you can't apply the rules for this thing for this other thing. They're two different things. So a lot of the charges were dismissed, but there were a couple that did stick. The court held up a charge involving operating drones within controlled airspaces, like a, near an airport. So the FAA had no legal justification to take operators to court, even if they were acting irresponsibly. So the agency had limited authority. It was pretty clear that the FAA could have the right to regulate operations within controlled airspace and that the FAA could establish the right to regulate pilots and drone airworthiness. But some operations, such as the indoor operation of drones, were deemed to be completely outside the FAA's authority. They couldn't say anything about how you operate a drone indoors. 
Now, the FAA would go and draft a new set of rules under Part 107. This would be small unmanned aircraft systems. So they drafted specific rules to cover these devices since they did not fit in the ultralight category. This would set the actual rules that the FAA could actively enforce. And the rules not only created the safe parameters for drone operation, it also gave commercial UAS operators the legal foundation upon which they could pursue their careers. Because commercial UAS operators... uh, have to follow rules as well, and they're different rules than recreational drone users. Uh, You might wonder what a professional UAS operator is doing. A lot of them are uh, camera operators because a lot of film projects end up needing drone shots. They can replace helicopter shots or crane shots. So you can see them a lot in the entertainment and information industries. And this was a way for people to actually make that a living. Now, the rule states that drone operators have to maintain a line of sight with their vehicles while they're operating them outdoors. So you could not use a camera and monitor system to pilot your your drone out of sight. So you couldn't just uh, go beyond line of sight with these, these rules in place. The pilot has to be able to lay eyes on the drone at all times. Uh, Also, the operators are to fly the drones at an altitude ceiling of 400 feet or 122 meters, that's the same as for the model airplanes, so that didn't change. Another restriction states that you can't fly your drone over human beings unless those people are undercover, so if the drone were to fall out of the sky, it wouldn't hurt anybody. Uh, The only exception to this is if you are the actual pilot of the drone. You can fly it over yourself, but you're not allowed to fly it over anyone else. That would become a big restriction for commercial drones, as we'll talk about a bit later. The vehicles also can't be carrying hazardous material, so you can't have, you know, like biological agents or chemical agents or things like that or explosives on a drone. That's illegal. And pilots are limited to operating only a single aircraft at any given time. There are also other rules that are involved with this, but those are the general ones for recreational drone use. In addition... If a UAV weighs more than 0.25 kilograms or about 0.55 pounds, the operator is required to register the drone in the United States. Uh, Operators have to be at least 13 years old in order to register a drone. If they are younger than that, they can have a quote-unquote responsible adult do it in their place. So you don't have to be 13 to operate a drone, but you have to be at least 13 to register a drone. The registration fee is $5. It's good for three years, so it's not... Uh, prohibitively expensive. You know, drones are already pretty expensive, so that's the limiting factor, I would argue, more than the registration fee. These rules are, again, just for recreational use. They don't apply to people who are piloting drones for profit. And starting in 2006, the FAA began to issue commercial drone permits. This gets complicated because operating a drone commercially is in violation of those FCC regulations I talked about. Because the FCC regulations state that you can only use those amateur radio bands for amateur use. You cannot use it to make a profit. That's, you know, there are different frequencies that are reserved for commercial use. So technically, if you're making a living operating a drone, uh, you can get permission from the FAA to do it. But the actual radio frequencies you're using to control the drone have to be over amateur radio frequencies, and that technically is in violation of the FCC rules. That being said, I am not aware of any cases in which the FCC 
came up against a drone operator and said, you're not allowed to do that because you're making money and these frequencies have been reserved just for amateur use. But technically, it is against the rules. Maybe that means that one day we'll see the rules be it, get some adjustment. But uh, yeah, it's an interesting issue that I guess isn't really an issue because if no one's pressing the matter, it doesn't ultimately mean anything, but technically it is uh, against the rules. So on average, uh, once the FAA started to issue commercial drone permits in 2006, it was issuing them at a rate of two per year for about eight years. Now that was not because the FAA was being particularly picky with who got a drone permit to operate a drone commercially. It was just because the demand was super low. Not a lot of people were re requesting these certifications. However, that did change dramatically in 2015. Uh, the FAA went from doing about two a year to doing 1,000 permits in 2015. The following year, it more than tripled the number of permits. So it was more than 3,000 at that point. And this was kind of in line with the rise in quality of drones uh, in general, as well as the camera equipment aboard drones. So now you started to see, you know, higher resolution cameras get attached to drones around this time. So there were more uses, commercial, potential commercial uses for drones. So as the cameras improved, interest in drone permits increased and more filmmakers and producers began incorporating drone footage in their works. But the rules as written would prohibit certain operations. No company would be able to use drones to deliver packages under the UAV rules in Part, part 107. In order to get that permission, a company would have to take some extra steps. So yeah, you could operate a drone to shoot movies. You could do that, and you could make a profit despite the FCC guidelines. But you couldn't use a drone to carry a package to a customer in the United States because the FAA rules would prohibit that. So the first proposals to use drones for delivery started popping up in 2013. That's when Amazon's Jeff Bezos showed news correspondent Charlie Rose a project that was codenamed Prime Air. Still is to this day. This program would have drones called octocopters carrying packages through the sky to customers' homes, and it was a big surprise to the television crew that was there to shoot an interview with Bezos and was a huge unveiling to the world at large. The goal was to speed up delivery considerably. So ideally, here's how this would unfold. A customer would hit buy on the Amazon site for some small product. That would send a message to a nearby order fulfillment center. And there, the order would be prepared and placed in a small yellow bucket. And then a drone could come by and pick up the little yellow bucket and then fly to the correct destination, setting down the package and getting the product into the customer's hands within a half hour of their ordering it. So it was a pretty revolutionary idea, particularly for 2013. Bezos estimated it would take probably four to five years to really perfect the technology and get regulations in place to make it a viable service. It's now six years after that, and that hasn't happened yet. But a different company did close the gap. More on that in just a second. But since Amazon's reveal, a few different companies, including Amazon, have attempted to run some limited programs to research the feasibility of delivery drones. Uh, they had to be limited in the U.S. because the FAA was still working out how to regulate the practice and the rules for recreational use were too restrictive for a practical delivery drone. Ideally, you'd want a largely automated system, which means the operator might not even be a human being. It might be a computer system. 
But if you did have a human pilot, you'd probably want that person to be stationed in a headquarters and operating the vehicle via remote control and using onboard cameras for visual information fed back to monitors in front of the pilot. But that violates the line of sight rule that recreational pilots have to follow. It wouldn't make sense for delivery services to have to follow that rule because if a person has to trail behind a drone in order to make a delivery, why would you not just give the package to the person, the operator, and then they could make the delivery themselves? It's it's a waste of, of resources to have a person go along with the package. Now, there were a few demonstrations that were little more than publicity stunts rather than an example of a working practice. So, for example, there was a guy named uh, Harut uh, Vartanian, who was the owner of a dry cleaning business in Philadelphia called the uh, Manayunk Cleaners. Then he used a converted DJI Phantom Quadcopter, which is a radio-controlled device, uh, and he did it to deliver light loads of dry cleaning. And by light, I mean like a couple of shirts maybe. And not only was it remote controlled, it actually required two people to operate the drone. One person acted as pilot, the other one acted as a spotter to make sure that the drone wasn't going to run into anything or encounter any obstacles. Now, obviously, that is not a labor-saving effort, right? If you're using two people to deliver a couple of shirts using a drone, you're obviously on the losing end of a proposition as far as work efficiency goes. However, that really wasn't the point. The point was to have a marketing uh, approach that would attract more young people to the business. And it certainly gathered a lot of, of interest from various news media in the area. There were a lot of videos about this particular move, even though it was not a practical solution to the problem of delivery. Other demonstrations were perhaps a little more practical, though still clearly orchestrated to get a lot of news coverage. In 2014, Domino's Pizza announced it was partnering with a drone company called Flirty, a U.S. drone company, to arrange for drone pizza delivery services in a small area in New Zealand. Uh, in reality, due to regulatory hurdles, it took about two years for the company to deliver its first pizza by drone, doing so in a New Zealand town whose name I will now totally mangle. It's Wanga Paroa. Uh, I know I butchered that name, and I am deeply sorry. But the drones carried pizza in a cardboard box, which was holding a standard cardboard pizza box inside of it, and presumably inside that was the za itself. The drone would fly off to a customer's home, hover over their backyard, and lower the cardboard box on a tow cable until the box was safely on the ground, at which point the cable would disengage with the box, it would wind back up inside the drone, and the drone would fly back home to Domino's. Now, Wing, uh, which I'll talk about more in a few minutes, also ran a similar demonstration in Australia in 2017, using its drones to deliver food from a Mexican restaurant chain, as well as orders from a drugstore company, uh, though honestly, I think most of the coverage was focused more on the burritos than the drugs. Uh, at Amazon's Machine Learning, Automation, Robotics, and Space Exploration Conference, also known as MARS, the company delivered bottles of sunscreen to conference attendees. And the company announced that the whole delivery thing was planned in advance, but it was executed as a fully automated process. There was no one piloting the actual drones. And it was the first demonstration of Amazon's prime air technology on public grounds. All previous testing, at least in the United States, had been on private property. 
Now, Amazon had done other pilot programs, or I guess we should say pilot-less programs in other countries, in the UK where the company did not encounter the same regulatory concerns as it did in the United States. It went a little further, a little faster. Amazon ran a test program of Prime Air in Cambridge starting back in 2016. So the company has operated in limited fashion in other markets, just not in the U.S., But the company that has recently managed to take the next big step in drone delivery is Wing, and I'll explain more in just a second. But first, let's take another quick break. So as I mentioned earlier in this episode, Wing is a company under the parent company Alphabet. That's, again, the same parent company to Google. And Wing has advanced the possibility of drone delivery in the U.S., to become the first drone company to secure air carrier certification from the FAA. And the FAA had made the determination that any large-scale drone delivery service in the U.S. would have to meet the safety and economic certification standards, the same ones that a licensed airline in the United States would have to meet. And by licensed airline, I really am talking about things like a charter airline or a small air cargo operation. Now, without that certification, companies would not be allowed to operate a drone delivery service at scale and certainly not be able to charge for the delivery service. They could charge for the products, but not the delivery service itself. So companies had a big incentive to work through this process. Wing is the first company to actually do it. So let's dive down a little bit into those standards to get a better understanding of how something that applies to manned aircraft that carry human passengers and cargo can also apply to an unmanned autonomous drone. Now, in the introduction to air carrier certification, the FAA states, quote, the Federal Aviation Administration, FAA, uses the air carrier certification process to ensure that you, the applicant, are able to design, document, implement, and audit safety-critical processes that do two things, comply with regulations and safety standards, manage hazard-related risks in your operating environment. The purpose for the certification process is really to determine whether an applicant is able to conduct business in a manner that complies with all applicable regulations and safety standards and allows you to manage the hazard-related risks in your operating systems and environment. The process is designed to preclude the certification of applicants who are unwilling or unable to comply with regulations or to conform to safe operating practices. So, In other words, this whole process is there to make sure that the people who want to operate these kind of businesses really know their stuff Uh, and discourage those who are like, man, I sure would love to run an uh, air charter company and then realize, oh, wait, I don't I don't have the knowledge or skill set to actually pull this off as a real business. I'm discouraged by this. It's better that I turn away from it now before I spend too much time and money trying to develop a business that ultimately I cannot actually oversee. So the FAA divides this whole process up into five phases. And I'm not going to go through all of them. The first phase is technically a pre-application phase to issuing a a certificate. That would be the final phase is actually giving the certificate out. That's phase five. So the early phases are really about the development, submission, and analysis of a company's operating systems to make sure that the 
business plan and the operation plan that the company has complies with all regulations and safety standards. So essentially, this is how a company is going to operate on paper, right? It's their plan, and it has to be a good, thorough one that meets all these different uh, regulations for safety and risk assessment for the FAA to even go any further in the process. So the FAA has analysts who will take the submission of this plan on paper, and they will go through it with a fine-toothed comb to make sure everything is in order, that the people behind the company have truly thought about the risks associated with operating the business as defined, and they have plans in place to mitigate or correct for any uh, any risks or, or safety concerns that might arise. Uh the companies also have to submit a safety risk management process that the FAA has to approve before moving on, which then brings us all the way up through phase three and to phase four. So assuming the company's plans are in order, assuming that they get through phase three, the phase four is all about a demonstration of the operations of the company. So now you're no longer talking about the company on paper. Now you have to be able to prove that it works in action in the real world. So, again, the earlier phases were all about saying, this is how we're going to do business. This is how we're going to detect any potential problems. This is how we're going to address those problems. This is how we're going to ensure the safety of our customers and everybody else. Phase four is actually testing that plan out with a demonstration. So with traditional airline companies, that even includes the operation of the aircraft to satisfy the FAA's requirements that the said aircraft is meeting all safety regulations. And then the company has to pass a series of proving tests set by the FAA. And if they can do that, then they can show that their real-world implementation of this operations plan actually works. Now, assuming all of the requirements are met satisfactorily, the FAA would then issue the air carrier certificate to the company. This is phase five. Most of the safety requirements are all about identifying those potential risks and, and how the business would identify, analyze, assess, and address those risks and how the business would assign accountability for its operations. So one of the things you have to submit when you're submitting for an air carrier certificate is the name of a representative of the company who is the accountability executive. It's the person for whom all accountability ultimately falls for that business. So it needs to be someone you're really confident in who can um, uh, be incredibly certain that the operations are going to be uh, safe and reliable. So it's all meant to demonstrate that people at the company have a real understanding of how to operate in airspace and in a responsible and safe manner. The process can take months. And when news broke in March 2019 that the FAA was going to award a drone delivery business one of these air carrier certificates, it did not take a whole lot of detective work to figure out that the most likely candidate was Wing because it was the only drone delivery company that was listed on the FAA's website as having applied for the certification in the first place. So it was either Wing or some company that the FAA just didn't disclose. So pretty, pretty much everyone already figured it out. 
even with this new approval, Wing will still have to operate within some pretty tight restrictions. The FAA has yet to establish the rules for operating drones in more densely populated areas, such as cities. And while commercial drones don't have to follow all the same rules as recreational drone operators, one of those rules still applies, which is you are not allowed to fly a drone over other human beings. You can't have drones flying over people because of the potential hazard it poses. And for that reason, Wing is limiting its service to some rural communities in Virginia. Those lucky Virginians will be able to order stuff to be delivered by Wing drones, largely because there's very little likelihood that the drones will need to fly over any crowds of people in order to get to their destinations. So that has limited utility. Even if it were to expand to other regions, which is Wing's ultimate plan, they do want to expand operations to other communities. At the moment, they would still need to be communities that are fairly spread out, where you're not going to have drones flying over people's heads because there's still no rules to guide that kind of operation. So the plan for the near future is for Wing to continue its operations this way, Uh, It will continue to refine its approach and tweak things that might not work so well as they could once the delivery drones are actively delivering packages to people in those communities in Virginia. They can use that as sort of a testing grounds to see what the best practices are for their business. But in the meantime, the hope is that the FAA will continue to create these rules that would allow companies like Wing to expand operations to markets that would find those services perhaps more helpful, like cities. Now, in other parts of the world, companies are moving forward at a slightly faster pace. Every area is different. So companies like Wing or Amazon might face completely different regulations or political resistance or acceptance uh, in one country than they would in the United States. So they often are experimenting in multiple markets simultaneously. Some are much more receptive than others. Uh, so it is not something that is is advancing evenly around the world. Meanwhile, in the U.S., there are a lot of unanswered questions. Uh, typically, airspace regulations fall to the federal level. They are not state-level considerations. But there are some questions about what happens if a drone has to cross state lines to make a delivery. You might have a big city in one state that is bordering a state line, and on the other side of the state line, you might have a small community, which means that deliveries are typically crossing state lines. Uh, Is that going to cause any issues with the drones? That's still a question, like, you know, the regulatory issues, not technical issues. There's nothing technically different about crossing a state line. But are there regulatory problems that might, we might encounter? That's a question that hasn't been answered yet. I find it fascinating that we're already at a level of technical sophistication in which a drone can technically deliver stuff to an address by itself in the first place. We're already there technologically, and I think that's amazing. I've seen some implementations in which the person who's receiving a package first has to go out and put down kind of a, a mat. It's usually a square that has a clear symbol on it, and the camera aboard a drone can pick up the image, some software processes the image, and image recognition software says, ah, this is indeed the right location for me to deliver this package. And the drone would typically descend, landing more or less on that pad, dropping its package, and then flying off. Uh, In other implementations, it wasn't obvious if there was anything on the ground that was marking the point 
where the drone was supposed to leave a package. So it's possible that there are some implementations that don't require you to put out such a pad, Um, meaning you can just stay in your house while you're waiting for the drone delivery, and then when you get a notification, you can go outside and pick it up. Uh, But I don't know for sure, because a lot of the videos for this kind of stuff are shot in such a way that you don't really see the ground so well, or they are clearly sort of a PR video where you can't be certain that it really reflects the reality of the uh, scenario. Uh, But to make this work, a lot had to come together. The physical operation of the drone has to account for the weight of the payload. Typically, these companies are maxing out at around 5 pounds for a payload or about 2.27 kilograms. Uh, The drone has to be able to maintain stable flight even in breezy conditions. I do imagine that if the weather is particularly nasty, drones are not going to be operating that day. The obstacle recognition technology has to be top-notch because the drones are going to be navigating areas that can have potential obstacles like power lines, trees, water towers, and other buildings. So there's still a long way to go. But some things that have acted as barriers for the drone delivery business are now at least resolved in the United States. Like there's there's clearly been one case where the first steps towards widespread drone delivery are possible. Uh, the big step, obviously, is that air carrier certification process. So Wing can actually charge money now for its drone delivery service because it's received this certification. You know, before they could offer a drone delivery service in a, a trial Uh, experiment, but they couldn't charge for it. That would have been against the FAA's rules. Now they can charge for it. Again, there's still the issue with FCC, but no one seems to be particularly concerned with that. Um, So you can now include a a delivery convenience fee on top of the cost for the whatever the, the item is. Now, will we see a future in which delivery trucks disappear and drones are delivering everything? The skies are cloudy with drones. Probably not. Drones are still going to have physical limitations on how much they can carry. And sometimes we order stuff that's heavier than five pounds, which means there's still going to have to be someone driving that stuff around. And again, types of weather might end up complicating matters. But for certain types of products, those being small and lighter than a few pounds, you might be able to get a delivery within a half hour of ordering courtesy of a little flying robo friend. So that brings us up to speed to the current state of drone delivery systems. And that concludes this episode. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or any comments or anything you would like to send me, the email address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Or you can pop on by our website. That's techstuffpodcast.com. You'll find an archive of all of our old episodes there, plus links to our social media sites and a link to our online store where every purchase you make goes to help the show and we greatly appreciate it. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is a production of iHeartRadio.